Hi, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, which is dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible through lifefulness. I'm your host, Sanson Jones. And I'm your co-host, James Croft. Lifefulness adapts the techniques of spiritual communities and congregations in a way that is secular, inclusive, and evidence-based. It was pioneered at Sunday Assembly, the worldwide network of non-religious congregations, which I co-founded back in 2013. And I'm the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. On the Lifefulness podcast, we interview brilliant people who will give you and us insights into how live life in all its fullness by combining ancient wisdom with modern science. So let's get lifeful. Let's get lifeful. Our guest today is Lennon Flowers, who is an amazing thinker, doer, creator, and leader. An inspirational figure in the world of reimagining spiritual community in a way that is non-religious. She does this through The Dinner Party, a non-profit that helps people in their 20s and 30s who have lost loved ones and are experiencing grief. Her work is inspired by her own mother's death when she was at college, probably in between doing a keg stand or being part of Beta Kappa Slapper. And she was there and she found that there was actually no one for her to talk to about her experience. So she arranged a dinner party for people who were grieving and a movement was born. Today there have been dinner parties in over 100 cities and she's recognised as an outstanding social entrepreneur and a reanimator of spiritual traditions. I love this conversation. Lennon is great. I could talk to her for hours. You'll get sort of little bits of wisdom about grief, the grieving process, the transformative potential that lurks within loss, and the power of community for change, as well as what makes a good community, and so much bloody more. James and I had our ears on stalks, if that is possible, because we love this so much. I was really moved by this conversation because I'm actually in exactly the group of people which the dinner party targets. I lost my dad a couple of years ago when I was 35. I found that there wasn't a huge amount of resources for people like me or places that I could speak about my father and the memories I had for him. And I was so moved by what Lennon was saying about what she did, what she said about loss and our need for community, that I actually signed up for a virtual dinner party and will be attending the first one soon. I thought it was a great convo. She is the perfect example of someone who is doing life from this without even knowing the word. Her work revives and makes sacred the act of coming together to eat. And classic radio segue, I think you'll find this chat absolutely delicious. So, Lennon, welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. Uh, we are so pleased to have you. Uh, whilst compiling this list of guests, it's a really awesome thing for uh, James will go and suggest someone, and I'll go and suggest someone. So, we really, and James, you were totally getting your excitement on when you were sort of learning about Lennon's work. Yeah, doing the research, it was absolutely awesome to see what you've been up to. And I'm really excited to talk to you about it. I'm, I'm kind of pumped, as the Americans say. And you are the founder of The Dinner Party. You are an sort of expert in sort of grief and loss and community building. And you are highly recognised, undoubtedly decorated for it as well. But we're going to get into all of that. 
But maybe start off to, you know, the idea of lifefulness is we're about adapting the sort of spiritual community and traditions in a way everyone can take part. Uh, were you a part of any spiritual communities growing up? Kind of in and out. Um, I think my very first experience of the spiritual community was as a, a preschooler in a Unitarian church. Um, you know, and it was the kind of primary teachings were like cultures from around the world. Uh, um, and, um, you know, and I think it was a really important community to my mom um, as a single parent at the time. Um, and she was kind of a lifelong agnostic um, and bequeathed to me um, a spirit of question asking. Um, but a few years later, um, she got remarried and uh, my stepdad, uh, whose brother is an Episcopalian minister and had grown up in the Episcopalian church, started uh, taking... I. I asked to go to church with him on Sundays. Um, and I did that um, for a number of years. And I, I suspect most of the kind of spiritual curiosity at the time was, um, you know, a kid, an unbaptized kid in North Carolina who wanted to fit in and was curious about how in this whole world. Um, and, you know, found within that space, um, both a lot of things that were less than appealing, um, but it became um, one of the early avenues where I found that adults listened to kids. So I got involved in some kind of like youth organizing um, at the time um, in a uh, church that was, you know, otherwise predominantly interested in pearl wearing um, and not at all, you know, like the speed um, or culture that I had come from. Um, but yeah, you know, and I, I think lifelong question asking um, has continued to be um, part of my spiritual path, as it were. So you're sort of like an annoying child who keeps on going, why, 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 why? Just like, yeah. oh, just shut up. And I think, you know, like part of what I really appreciate is that I didn't go up, grow up in a particularly ideological um, or doctrinaire, you know, sort of environment. And that it was much more, um, less about, you know, preaching about what you believed and much more the kind of acts with which you lived your life. I would, I'm always fascinated when I go meet people who do have have had religious backgrounds when they're a child because that's actually quite rare in the UK to, mm. for people to be part of churches and often when you meet them they are you know early 20s and they will be have this sort of confidence which comes from having had to think about laying out the chairs or having from an early age having to go and speak to people and I mean have you gone and seen that development throughout the rest of your sort of like that grow on that sort of sense of leadership children sometimes can be given that yeah i mean it's such an interesting question and you know i don't know that i've thought about it a lot um because i you know that period in my life was relatively abbreviated but um you know like i wrote my first public piece of writing was for like the um the epistle you know and i remember like being so nervous about this like publication at the age of 14 um you know and the first kind of public speaking was um i don't know just a reading you know um in in that kind of space and so i think that there was and then certainly within kind of um the youth council, I, I didn't particularly um, gel with a lot of the other, you know, kids there. Um, but it was, I really appreciated adult conversations and adults who, you know, um, didn't treat kids like kids, you know, and were like interested in voice and involvement. And that was, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, a very important formative experience. And then now when you look at it, like you, you don't have, it sounds like you don't have a God. I don't know what to presume there uh but what is the the sort of ultimate meaning that you're sort of following in life or the ultimate meaning that guides you 
That is, uh, I'll get back to you um, when I like discover it, you know, I think um, continuing to be on the quest. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I think what I have come to appreciate um, is the power of seeing, you know, divinity in one another, you know, and I'm going to real... stop you there just because yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of people in this podcast who've just got like, hear the word divinity and it doesn't square with their world. Like, how do you understand yep. divinity as someone who isn't religious? And then is it possible to maybe answer that question somewhere where there aren't umbrellas with rain hitting them? Yeah, so I um, just took this call because it was gonna be beautiful outside and no, it, I'm in an indoor family co-working space right now. Um, and I was promised by the great state of Colorado that this would be the one day without rain, but <laughs> it lied. So I'm gonna walk myself inside. Um, apologies, guys. No worries. <laughs> working in pandemic times, okay. It does, it's it like, worth it to see the amazing environment in which you're working. That little <laughs> glimpse of the forest behind you and the, oh, the beautiful vista is amazing. We are like literally living in a national forest, which makes social distancing quite easy. Um, let's see if this is a little bit more protected, shall we? I feel like, you know, most of, and my answers, you know, are inevitably about just the, the willingness and capacity of people to um, fully see and be seen by one another right when there's you know those moments um to me as part of how i define in my like weird way um the presence of divinity um is just um the kind of absence of performance and is there any better absence of performance than having to take calls in bedrooms um you know and like see the inside of somebody's messy life so welcome to mine guys okay um oh my practicing God. what we preach divinity <laughs> just happened oh, i personally feel healed so yeah i think i mean i think that there is something so profoundly sacred in the act of witness, right? In the act of when you hear yourself say something and you don't break because of it. And indeed you discover in that moment as heads nod or don't, um, but that you didn't break and other people didn't break from the thing that like you held inside with fear, right? That to me is a divine moment, right? The ability to see that in another person, um, you know, and to realize that we have this incredible capacity um, to accompany one uh, one another in life, you know, and I think um, the presence of just uh, yeah of of a deep willingness um, to to recognize you know a, a deep understanding of interdependence, you know, to me is about you know as close as one gets um, to an experience of godliness without believing um, you know in. Uh, in God as it's defined. I thought you went without believing as God and it's defined. If you define, if you de define it as something else entirely, then uh, totally, uh, <laughs> which is almost true of all words. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say what you said really resonated with me. The congregation I serve is an ethical society, which is a very small yeah. movement of congregations for people who are broadly not traditionally religious, and our movement has sometimes been called a religion of relationships because what we put central is the relationships between them and the depth that we can create and the sort of life we can live when we really connect with other human beings. Yes, yes, to like the relational fabric, you know, and I think there was a, an early period of time and actually part of how Sanderson and I met was, you know, through our work, you know, being framed in a, a in a 
as spiritual work, you know, and it was a title, um, you know, and a prescription that I, I resisted early on, um, you know, as a person who didn't have letters behind my name and doesn't come from, um, you know, in any rigorous way. Um, you know, a deep theological tradition and had, in fact, you know, um, seen a lot of people in my life, both helped and harmed by theirs, you know. Um, and it was, you know, this kind of question of like, oh, we can't claim that and that doesn't feel right or real. But and yet, you know, like, how do we take back, like, and that, you know, the words of all, right, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the presence of spirit um, without having to, you know, attach um, all of the bunk that you know historically has come with it you know um so yes you know to um relational congregations uh who are bound by love for one another can't that and shouldn't that be enough i think that that because i in all of these conversations when for instance my experience with the sort of going to this thing at uh, Harvard Divinity School where we got invited because we were creating community for millennials in new ways Mm -hmm. and I found myself really pushing back when Sunday Assembly got put in the religious sort of box of these new initiatives I was like no no we're resistance to that (laughs) no no, I'm not resistance to it either I'm just sort of like Mm -hmm. yeah no that's an interesting place we learn from it but I think there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this, you know, have got that feeling of wanting something more and actually being able to put on a word on it and to hear someone say, oh, it feels like divinity, but I'm totally not religious in the conventional way. Suddenly it does go and open up all of these traditions to you with these different techniques, these different rhythms, these different places that you can learn from it. And so I think that it is it's really powerful to be introduced to these ideas. And then part of what lifefulness is about is also saying, okay, well, how can we go and really then go and adapt this in a way that everyone can, as many people as possible can do it. The question that I would then lead to you is once you have had it reframed as a sort of type of Mm. divinity, as a sort of spiritual work for you, who's not religious, what, how did that change what you were doing? How did that lens help you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it gave, I think it gave a, a naming and a depth, you know, um, and a, and an affirmation and validation. When I think about, um, you know, those early experiences of church, what was meaningful in it? Um, my mom died of lung cancer my senior year of college, um, and she had been sick for four years. And in those four years, every single Wednesday, a group of women um, from the church. And again, my mom was a lifelong agnostic who was profoundly private about her, her religious beliefs. So there wasn't any like proselytizing or attempt to like save a soul at the end of life. It was just a conviction and a commitment um, to one another. So every Wednesday, apart from um, you know those in which she was in the hospital, um, this group of women came for four years. And I saw that like level wow. of conviction and commitment to one another, right? And again, to presence. And I think it was the kind of languaging of, you know, what we were doing within the dinner party that, you know, had not at all seemed to me, um, you know, or, or for which I not at all felt a claim to the nature of spiritual work, that I could go back to those early experiences of spiritual community and remember that what was powerful about it was not what was said from a pulpit um, or the kind of shared belief system. It was the shared presence. 
um, and the presence through our worst days. Um, and so suddenly, you know, this felt like a, a very different kind of iteration, but part of a same like thread. Oh, James's head's going to explode the, with the amount that he agrees with you there. He's just nodding <laughs> yep. along. His head's going to fall <laughs> off. Becoming <laughs> a bobblehead. Yeah. Uh oh. God, you're hitting all my right buttons. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> now this is getting disturbing, son. Sorry, I was just going to say there, you we hadn't really fully introduced the work that you were doing. We started off and you said something so interesting that we got distracted. Could you introduce this, uh, the dinner party, which is this amazing project, which has spread all over the world now. So tell us all, Lennon, <laughs> enlighten us. Yeah, I mean, so our work um, within the dinner party is, is about how do we build a community um, out of loss, right? And use the thing that is, um, you know, most often a conversation stopper um, as a conversation starter and kind of recognizing that the things that we are apt and told, um, you know, to hide, right, and keep um, under a rug lest we, you know, make other people uncomfortable is actually some of our best generative tissue. Um, for building real relationships, you know, and escaping kind of all of the confines and limitations of just like superficiality and, you know, like the moments in which we're trying to like see one another and only skimming a surface, right? Like when you actually have nothing left to lose and you expose those, you know, parts of, um, you know, the unfixable realities with, that you carry and realize um, that actually you are freed by naming them out loud. Um, and, and that, you know, out of that, there's a community of people who, um, you know, much um, through no desire of their own, right, and much the opposite, um, have learned that life isn't forever, right? And so what is it that you choose to do with your time on earth? And how do we build community um, out of, you know, the parts of us um, that feel too broken to be seen in community, you know? Oh my God, if that was on being, that would be the little bit which gets the music underneath it. <laughs> like, if, if people don't know on being, it's this uh, podcast that deals with these things. It's very good. And I've always wanted to be like, oh my God, when do you get the on being music underneath what you say? But that's, that's that, yeah, it's amazing. And, and could you just explain a bit more about what the, how the dinner party operates or, you know, and its story from, you know, from this, this moment with you, your mum being looked after and then after she died, like how did it turn into this uh, movement? Yeah, um, I mean, so, so I guess to go back in time, um, the kind of origins of the dinner party is I feel like they're the origins of every part of my life, you know, and unfolded by accident. Um, I had about three and a half years after she died, um, I had moved to California where I knew um, one person who was my boyfriend at the time who I would break up with very soon, um, you know, and was seeking friends, right? On those kind of itchy feet in your mid twenties and, and presumed, um, you know, in the time um, that she was sick, you know, um, my mom, much to her credit, um, was very open um, about living with terminal illness, you know, and, um, you know, wanted a kind of open conversations as a household, you know, and wasn't afraid of dark places, um, you know, and I um, was kind of the opposite in a lot of ways, you know, and wanted to like hide the part of my life that was clinical trials and cancer in every other sentence from the world that was, you know, one of just let me be a college student, right? And then kind of managed um, to get into a survival strategy of kind of keeping every hour very full every day. Um, and that kind of 
pattern of compartmentalization, you know, continued to serve me really well. Um, you know, even in the time after she died. Um, but then I found, you know, 3,000 miles away from the community that knew my story without my having to tell it, right? Um, that suddenly, like, everything in my life felt like a landmine, you know, um, of just, like, gentle kind of questions of getting to know each other, you know, of where you come from um, and who you come from um, and what is home, you know, and what are the things that, like, you th you're th that are, you know, in the back of your mind on kind of first dates, you know, in all of that world. Um, and it wasn't until I met um, my friend and eventually co-founder, Carla, um, who was also new to the city and also had moved out for a boyfriend who she'd also soon break up with. Um, and, you know, on a walk one day, she shared that her dad had died um, six months before. And that was, it wasn't that it was the first time um, that either of us had mentioned it to one, to anybody, you know. But typically, my way of mentioning it was when it was when there was no no dodge, you know, in conversation. Mm. And so, like, you know, yes, my mom died on X day, you know, with an ever growing number of years attached to it. And then the conversation was, you know, like, and let's move this on, right, into more comfortable territory for you, which will mean more comfortable territory for me. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, that those early conversations with Carla that were so um, enlivening, and to realize that, you know, like who my mother was as a living person and how her life continued to shape who I was as a living person, how it shaped all of the kind of relationships in this cast of characters, you know, in, in what was a complicated family before she got sick, you know, um, and let alone the kind of ways in which her death and absence continued to play out, that there was still so much there, despite the fact that I wasn't like actively grieving, you know, I, in a, any kind of acute sense, um, at least. So we started to get together um, for dinner with a handful of other people um, at the time who had all lost parents, um, you know, anywhere from months before to years and years before. Um, and for whom, you know, you recognized that that um, experience, grief isn't a moment, right? Um, it is, you know, something that you continue to carry that, you know, um, mm. forever kind of demarcates life before and life after. And that there was a richness to both exploring kind of all of that territory um, and developing even a vocabulary with which, like, how do you talk about your own life when you've been incredibly accustomed at not, right, and at never kind of going there? Um, and then, lo and behold, you know, that actually builds, you know, an incredibly rich friend community, right? And the thing that I was actually, like, craving, you know, as a um, new Angelino, um, you know, of just friends, right? Um, and friends, you know, with whom there was nothing that was off the table. That's amazing, and you, I'm sure within that, this community, which you then started, you must have seen how it's got the capacity to change people through being able to talk about grief and being able to sort of process it. I wonder if you could share some of the, there must be certain stories which sort of stand out to you from the people who've come through the dinner party. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think like there are, I mean, so first and foremost, you know, some of my richest friendships have emerged from around those tables. And, and our interest, you know, is not only kind of in the power of what happens the first time you sit down, right? And you, again, say something that you've never said before or were afraid of, and you see a head nod, you know, and that kind of like feeling of relief and affirmation, um, you know, can be incredibly powerful, right? And, and the experience of like, 
oh, you know, like curiosity and wonder at like, oh, despite the fact that there are these parallels in our experiences, they're completely different experiences. And mm. isn't that fascinating and part of the human condition? The interesting part to me is not that first encounter. It's what happens over time when you're continuing to get together with the same group of people and those people become friends, right? So the stories that I love, you know, are the ones in which like there's, you know, the dinner party grief group table at the wedding, right? You know, <laughs> or the wedding comprised of the people who like met within that space, you know? Um, it's, you know, the people who discover, you know, that they actually like really hate their jobs <laughs> and like want to do something, um, you know, different with their time, um, while they're here to have it. Right. Uh, and this kind of recognition, um, you know, I think that for all of our avoidance of, you know, death and hard stuff, right. Cause we're, you know, wired to be pain avoiding creatures that there is so much like meaning and purpose that can be attached to that. And, and that isn't to like whitewash or minimize, right. Um, pain, you know, and I think we do a real disservice when we kind of leap to the positivity that like actually holding each other and like around the things that can't be fixed, you know, is a really powerful thing to do. Um, but it, you know, unleashes just a kind of creative force in terms of job changes, right. In terms of friendships and yes, in terms of, you know, some of our most intimate relationships. Hey there, I thought I would uh, interrupt that great content for some more great content. And what I want to tell you about is we are doing a Lifefulness Podcast launch competition and we've got some awesome prizes to give away. If you go to lifefulness.io forward slash podcast, uh, there is a box there. And what happens is if you go and share the podcast, if you go and send it to your friends, if you go and like our Facebook page and a whole host of other things, then you get one entry into the competition. And there are some awesome prizes there. There's a personal development workshop by James and I. There's a workshop for your company. There are talks which we will be willing to do in your company, your community, or your not-for-profit. Yeah, we would love you to support this by getting the message out there. So what you do is you go to www.lifefulness.io forward slash podcast. And if you're able to share this, then you might get one of those super, super good prizes. So thanks so much. And without further ado, after sort of injecting some little extra to do, back to the podcast. When I was looking at the website for the dinner party, it connected to me immediately because my dad died a couple of years ago. I'm 37 now. So, you know, I was 35 then. And one of the things That's that, that Harvard about, education coming through again, he could just do those maths. <laughs> do that that like that. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I've got it. I've got it. You can see, you can see my little vein here pulsing as I work that out. Um, and I live in a country that I didn't grow up in. Right. And so one of the things that I found is that there is no one here who knows my father who knew him at all. Um, and so I haven't had much of an opportunity to speak to anybody at length who actually knew my father since he died. My family is basically it. And so finding an opportunity to share that experience. And also, I think reading what you wrote on the website or some excellent person wrote on the website about this niche of kind of 20 to 30 somethings. You're not a kid and you're not you know, at the age when most people can expect to lose a parent or something like that. And so it's a kind of gap. And I do find myself thinking, oh, I really think my dad should have lived like 10 or 15 more years, especially because in my mm -hmm. congregation, 
I have many people who are in their 80s, you know, and they're perfectly happily living their lives. My dad was 67. And I'm like, I feel like he should have had 15 more years and I shouldn't be in this position. Um, and it is unusual among my friend group to have someone who, who has lost a parent. Um, and then there, there is a gap for who do you speak about that with? And so firstly, I'm going to say that I signed up already. I know you're not, you're not assigning people to groups, but I signed up. So the moment that this virus is gone, I'm looking forward to getting involved. So I think you're really fulfilling a need. But what really intrigued me about what you're saying was the necessity of repeat meetings, that it's the development of a community of people over time, rather than just like a one-off venting session or when you can talk about it. Can you say a little bit more about that, the expectation that people who join a dinner party table will meet regularly over a period of time? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I think, and that actually I think is like one of the big myths that are out there, you know, for all of the misuses of the word community, oftentimes like what they're describing is connection, right? And, and connection is a really important thing, you know, um, connection can happen in one night, but community actually takes time, right? And so when you're, you know, signing up within the gender party, first and foremost, it, you know, you're not signing up, this isn't a product, right? It's not a um, you know, thing that you're buying off the shelf for like six sessions and then you will arrive, you know, depressed or grieving and you will leave not depressed or not grieving, you know, on the other side. Um, you know, it's ultimately about, you know, how do you actually build community where you want to be there, right? And so the expectation, you know, the average lifespan of a dinner party table um, you know, tends to be about a year, right? Um, and oftentimes, um, you know, tables will move through multiple kind of iterations of a person who started hosting after about a year is in a different relationship, um, you know, to their own experience of loss. They might have other things going on in their lives that take up more time and space. And so somebody from within the table becomes the host. And so suddenly you see this community that has a lifespan, you know, beyond the exact configuration of a group of people, you know? Um, and, you know, it's not that you are signing up with the expectation that like you must be here, you know, nine of the following 12 sessions. Um, and I think that there is something, you know, important to kind of name again about the role of accountability. And I think that oftentimes that's one of the things that is, you know, missing um, in a lot of, um, you know, attempts at kind of community in this moment is that it is so easy to flake out on one another, right? And it can be a really devastating thing when mm. you've like exposed something um, you know, really raw and vulnerable to another group of people and you like never hear from them again. So there is an expectation of like, we're going to, we're in this together. Right. Um, but if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. We, that we tend to group people, you know, match folks initially, you know, in groups of 12 or 15 with the expectation that, you know, that will probably winnow down to six or seven people, you know, who get together every month or every two months or every two weeks if you're in COVID times because time mm. seems to be very weirdly stretched in this moment. Um, you know, but the kind of fundamental goal is that for people who are seeking, you know, groups of friends, right, this is a space where you can find your people, right, and stay in relationship with the, that group of people over time and continue to celebrate, you know, not just stay, you know, stuck, right, solely in the experience in, you know, talking about like past tense, right? But like, actually, how is this showing up for you now? How do we know about each other's milestones and other things that are going on in a life, right? Um, you know, and that's, that's part of why we, um, you know, tend to group, you know, early 20-somethings to other early 20-somethings and late 30-somethings to other late 30-somethings, because loss is but one thing that we share mm. and have in common in this space. And so, you know, how do you create community 
that's also capable of celebrating, you know, each other's like, uh, you know, new mo- moments and jobs mm. and um, all of the kind of choice choice points that you've been sitting with. I think that what you say about accountability is key and something that we have to think about within the Lifefulness Project, because it's been my experience that many communities that are not religious, but are, that are trying to take some of the functions of religious communities and kind of secularize mm-hmm. them, are very uncomfortable with the accountability piece. Sometimes because people have had bad experiences with religions in the past, which went way too hard on accountability, that became sort of almost cult-like, but that the idea that almost having expectations for people will push them away and make them not want to join. And my experience has been, I see you shaking your head, the opposite, which is that having no expectations of people is what pushes people away, that actually you have to raise the bar for participation a bit for anyone to want to join. Yeah, no, I think that that's also one of the dumbest parts of modern kind of community building and best practice, like, is this idea that like, we must lower the barrier as much as possible. And to be clear, you know, we do, you know, it was really important to us to figure out accessibility, right? And part of that was even in the naming of the gender party that you create, you know, a, an identity, right? That people aren't embarrassed to share with their friends, you know, mm. um, felt really, really important. That was one of the barriers that we were trying to, you know, like lower. And, you know, in terms of kind of access, right? You know, whether, you know, you're parenting, um, you know, or caregiving or living with disability, right? Like all of these different issues, you know, become kind of barriers to participation, right? Because somebody isn't considering like the realities of your life. So it is really important that we think about that side. But the barrier that like, we're going to ask the minimum of one another in order to invite participation is complete garbage. And and we know it's complete garbage because when you think about like, you know, the friends in your own life, right? It's the ones who actually show up, right? That's the ones who are like more invested in one another. And you're not invested because, you know, somebody assigned you, you know, like the role of being a friend to this person. It's because you want to, and it's because like, you know, we are hardwired as the social species. So I think like, you know, one of the things that we've learned um, and it continues, you know, like, and I, I don't answer this question as somebody who's figured it out, you know, or as an organization that's figured it out, because it continues, you know, to be, um, I've had moments myself, you know, of like, you're planning something, you know, for a group of people, um, whether in person or virtually, um, you know, and you expect nine and two show up that night, right? And that's like a pretty like devastating feeling, right? Especially like when, you know, the thing that you're building community around is a grief experience, including your own, right? Um, but the way that we've found, you know, to work through that is actually just is not so much kind of like the kind of carrot and stick, you know, of either incentivizing participation with some like nonsense product or, you know, like punishing somebody, you know, or aiming them for not showing up. It's just like, hey guys, this hurts, you know? Mm. And here's, you know, like if you can't show up that night, like let's also recognize that it, particularly for these kinds of conversations, it takes real courage, right? Um, you know, and there's not a single member of our community, myself included, who is not at some point, you know, the first time you show up or or, you know, the 93rd, you know, had that feeling of like dread and shame and like, oh, do I really want to do this tonight? Because I could just Netflix, right? Mm. But when we're accountable to one another, because like my friend is counting on me to be there, right? It actually feels better to show up than it does to not, you know? And when you're a host and you say, you know, like, hey guys, I'm 
I'm struggling a little bit because, you know, you know, the last time I organized a potluck and, you know, like seven people said that they were going to come and only one did. And that really hurt, right? It's also inviting people to actually expose their own vulnerability and the feeling that comes with that, right? Um, whereas, you know, we've often found that, you know, if that happens, you know, our typical response would be, to ghost, right? I'm never going to do that again. Mm. Or like to pretend that like it didn't matter, right? It does, right? It actually hurts. And it's okay, even as a person who's putting something on um, without kind of a finger wagging, right? But to say like, hey, um, you know, just want to have a conversation with everybody of like, how do we create something that we want to be a part of, right? Because um, that didn't work. Um, and it's extraordinary. Um, when you let people in, I think to, you know, like exercising greater participation and exercising their own leadership, they actually take you up on it. Go figure. The, uh, this is, this is going to be for free, this piece of advice. Uh, and I think that maybe if people don't show up, who, whichever host has a picture of them at their, the funeral of the person that they're mourning and it gets sent to the person who doesn't show up and it just says, I was very sad when my mother, brother, father died, but you've made it worse by not showing up. And it's probably quite intense, but it's certainly worth A-B testing. See how it pans <laughs> out. Like, you know, just go, if it can be animated, so much the better. <laughs> I'll ask around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know, it's just nothing. These things have come to me, Tanner Penny. Uh, I, I don't, I don't do that. Don't do that. We're not going to do that, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. But I think, it's a, I think it's such an important point because, like, I also think that there are, yes, we need to take each other more seriously, right? You know, and there is not a community that doesn't, you know, suffer among millennials from high flake rates, right? And I think it is also too easy to like lean in the direction of accountability where you forget the humanity of the person who show, who failed to show up, yeah. right? That it's very possible that like you were also having a bad day, right? And you just yeah. couldn't do it. And so part of, and, and there's shame in that, right? So our impulse, you know, any in any experience of shame is to shrink away, to ghost, to never like reach out, right? To never acknowledge that like we need help on a certain day or simply can't do it. And, and that's okay, right? It's disappearance from one another that's mm. the problem. It's not an inability to show up. I'm sure that everyone listening here, there's going to be these, like to me, I'm hearing these things about like just the healing power of community, of sort of being in relationship with people and so whilst this is about grief you know it's really about like everything that you are doing in life of like the power of those relationships but i think also anyone who's lost uh, a loved one is also going to be picking up on all manner of uh, all manner of uh, different lessons that you've got here one of the things which i'm always most interested in is like what people sort of learn from grief I don't know if we mentioned it in our last podcast, but there's this idea of existential openings. It's actually when we go through these major life experiences, you know, life opens up. We suddenly go and are able, I've, there's this one example I heard of like someone describing when you put a bit of water in whiskey, the scent mm. opens up the same way that rain, when it falls in a forest, you know, it just gives itself to you more. And I do think there is an element of grief which does that. Have you, like, what sort of things have you seen around that? Yeah, you know, I think, like, the kind of, it's it's almost becoming cliche, but the notion of, like, a broken heart or broken open, right? 
Um, you know, and I think as we learn more and more about the science of post-traumatic growth, right, mm. which is a real thing, you know, and have, um, I think for a long time fixated, um, you know, much to our chagrin, right, on the kind of, um, on the kind of permanence, right, of trauma and what your life would have been but for, um, you know, the, the horrific, accidents of man and nature, you know, befalling you and not getting those extra, you know, 12 years with your dad that like, it seems like everybody else is getting, you know, um, and, and I think to recognize, you know, that oftentimes, you know, behind whatever, you know, pain we're carrying is more pain, is a, that you know, like that our sources of trauma and vulnerability will continue to like bleed out and show up in different manifestations in our lives. If we don't like give them space for airing and naming and being seen and held, you know, collectively. Mm. But I also think that there's this other side of things that is, you know, um, the reality of humans as a resilient species, you know, and the capacity, um, you know, to take off, to hold and handle, you know, infinitely more than you ever could have imagined, right, in those experiences. And that, like, when the worst happens to you, um, you know, or the worst that you could have imagined, um, you are broken, right? But, uh, and you hold broken bits in you, but you are not broken, you know, like, with mm. any sense of permanence by that, right? Um, and so I think, you know, it, it, there's a danger at times, you know, to the way in which we try to, you know, speed past pain, right? And, you know, like try to get as quickly as possible to like the glass half full, you know, like posy side of post-traumatic growth or like how you're a stronger person, you know? And sometimes like, let me just acknowledge I am both stronger than I imagined and more fragile too, right? And like the ways in which like loss can compound over time, that's okay, right? We don't need to fear our own fragilities. But I think, yes, that like reality that, um, you know, it is not an accident to me that like some of the best human beings that I know are the ones who've like, who know suffering and intimately. Can you Can please ask? call it a uh, posi, posi traumatic growth? Just and posi traumatic growth. Yeah. Let's go with that. <laughs> New coinage, millennial coinage. Words don't matter as established at the very beginning of this call. Okay. And divinity and posi traumatic growth. <laughs> I'm kind of into posi-traumatic growth. <laughs> Sanderson has a genius for naming things. It's going to take off. We're going to write the book and it's going to be hugely successful. I, I'm wondering, you spoke about a little earlier your own experience and how that kind of led into the formation of a group that you were a part of, right, of people sharing their experience. But I'm wondering, not everyone who had created a group for themselves that has that function would think, well, what I want to do next is to give it to everybody else, right? So, so why did, would, did you feel compelled to share this with the whole world? I don't know, because we've got diseased brains that like, like, seek to take on big problems. I'm like, oh, if only we could let somebody else handle that. I think early on, um, you know, I think I've always been deeply aware, you know, and, and one of the kind of lessons that my mom passed on, right, was, um, you know, just in a world that can very easily make you feel small, right, um, the importance of exercising, you know, voice and agency um, and a recognition that the people who've lived problems are generally the best adept at solving them. Um, so I think part of that was kind of like built into my hardwiring and DNA. Um, and then to realize that what we were doing around this original table wasn't rocket science, right? 
now thank god des um <laughs> um thank the, you for you know, correcting that was going to <laughs> jump in there still the, the you know hallmarks of old vocabularies but you know um it, but i think I, I d- had no idea how hard it would be, right? I had no, no idea, um, you know, like that all of the kind of like misfires and reality that like, oh, you know, building community uh, it requires more than a guidebook, you know, and like all of these things that like, you know, the myths of the ways in which community builds itself, starting small nonprofits from scratch is really difficult you know, for like 10,000 different reasons. And so I'm really grateful for the fact that all of that was, you know, um, unknown to us. What we knew in the very beginning was that what we were actually doing around those tables was, you know, like was an ancient human ritual, right? You know, totally separate from both religious spaces um, and certainly from kind of like the clinical models, you know, that um, have so oftentimes kind of replaced communities of care when we outsource that care to professionals and clinicians, right? That what we were doing was a simple act of, you know, being with one another and building friendship out of it. And so it was like, and, and yet it was, you know, for all of us, our first experience of that kind of real intimacy and honesty with a group of peers. Um, and so then it was, you know, well, if this isn't rocket science then you know, how might this grow? And, and um, you know, even before there was an organization or the intent to start an organization, there were, you know, it was like I was going back and forth um, between coast for a job. Um, and it was some colleagues um, in that organization in DC, you know, who heard about what we were doing in LA because I wasn't embarrassed to talk about it, you know, for the first time and discovered like, oh, actually there were other people who I know who'd also lost parents. Just none of us knew it because we were all really good at never talking about it. Right. And so suddenly, um, you know, they were like, oh, can we start doing that here? And then you realize like, yes, and, and I don't have to be in the room for it, you know? Mm. Um, because again, that like part of what we're looking for in the role of a host, you know, is not a capitalized, you know, like professionalized role, right? It's people who enjoy the act of gathering, right? People who have a capacity um, and, and a desire, right, to make people feel comfortable. Um, people who are not grief experts, um, you know, or trying to like, I'm so good at grief, let me do you everything. Um, <laughs> and instead, you know, can like actually like be honest about the things that are like really fucked in their own lives, you know, um, and the questions that they're sitting with and that honesty, you know, affords a self-permission, right, for other people to do the same. I know there's a lot of children who watch this and Lennon did just swear. So apologies to uh, everyone who is uh, listening live to that. We will <laughs> beep it out in the recording. Uh, obviously, I don't think anyone's Sorry, watching guys. it. <laughs> no, no one is just being an idiot. So you're, when you were talking about this thing, which for you was this sort of type of divinity, this like deep connection, this real sense of authentic relating to people at like a fundamental level when you go and think about the dinner party to what extent when you think about that organization do you feel that it's also a connection to your mother or do you or is it is it a shrine to her in any way oh my god my mom would be so pissed um if I like dedicate you know like dedicated the whole of my life to building a shrine for her so (laughs) no um and you know and I think that that actually is also part of the answer um James to your question of like why go from one group to multiple because at that point 
it wasn't, I wasn't even grieving, right? You know, when the first dinner party began, right? Not in, not in the ways that we typically associate with grief. The grief is more, I would say, lifelong than it is momentary, right? With a, you know, hard end date. Um, but, I, you know, in those early gatherings with that community, there was a lot that I needed to continue to work through in my relationship with my mother, right? And my relationship with the living and like sources of anger, you know, and I, I didn't under, I, I didn't realize until I was doing it that like, oh, in fact, your relationship to the dead can evolve, despite the fact that it is, you know, like, seemingly more one directional, right? And no, nobody can speak back. But by the time the dinner party as an organization, you know, was like ready to be born, it wasn't about my mom any longer, you know, um, but I found, you know, um, again, through, you know, circumstances that I wouldn't have wished on myself or other people, and certainly that she wouldn't have wished, right? Um, but that, you know, my life suddenly had more meaning and purpose in it, um, you know, than anything that I had known to date, and that that felt really good. And I wanted more of it, you know, and so um, and felt, you know, incredibly lucky to kind of grow this, you know, organization and community with a group of friends, right? Um, you know, so it, I think that there is something, again, that we, like, stay so fixated and uh, on the kind of, like, grief, sad, hard, you know, or even, like, the building a, of a shrine, you know, to the dead. And mm -hmm. when, in fact, you know, like, the greatest tribute to the dead is, you know, what you do with your living life, right? And, you know, and there is, you know, plenty of grief that is born, um, you know, of relationships that weren't relationships in life, right? That never earned that title, right? Um, you know, and you grieve like the, you know, possibility that wasn't, right? And the, um, you know, and yet what's interesting to me is not, you know, like anything about that person. It's about you, right? And what you, who you have been, who you are, you know, as a reaction and a reflection of what's come before you. Um, so yeah, you know, I think my mom, again, none of my life, you know, wasn't on, didn't like dream about this future as a little girl, you know, um, and yet um, there's, you know, when you kind of dig down into like the principles of living a life, you know, in which like you're in the driver's seat, you know, um, I feel like I've actually managed to hit a lot of the mark. I, my, my life today is, you know, infinitely richer than the one that I could have imagined for it. And we like to end uh, by asking this question, which is saving up a, saving up a biggie for later, which is, this is the Lifefulness podcast. We're dedicating to helping people live life as fully as possible. What does living life as fully as possible mean for you? I think, oh, living life as fully as possible is a willingness to experience at all, right? Neither, you know, I, I don't think that living a lifeful movement, life, you know, means um, an avoidance of death and loss and pain, um, mostly because we can't, right? Um, and, you know, the act of it, you know, um, you know, to attempt to do so denies you a lot of life, right? But neither do I think that, um, you know, the kind of like life is pain and suffering said some, you know, nonsense teacher from some nonsense time, right? Of like the actually like the power rate of like vitality and claiming, you know, not living somebody else's life either, right? And um, seizing your own to me um, is what, you know, matters more than anything in the world, you know, and, the, and that you are not, you know, the um, coloring within somebody else's box. 
you know, um, and equally capable and willing, um, you know, to experience both pain and joy as engine fuel. Wowzers. That's great. Thanks so much, Lennon. That was <laughs> beautiful. Uh, we're getting to the end of this. Uh, do you have a thing that we could point people towards uh, where they could go and uh, sort of download the dinner party uh, or whatever it might be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are on the interwebs and www.thedinnerparty.org. Um, and James, you can actually sign up for a virtual table. Um, so if you are only interested in waiting until post nine when we have the ability to sit around tables and share meals together and uh, oh my gosh, I can't wait um, for that time, be it, you know, uh, six months or 2026 from now. Um, that's an option. Um, and if you were looking to connect with folks um, in the medium that we have available to one another, it has been a real gift to realize that, like, we can actually have honest, authentic conversations and create meaningful connection and indeed community um, on online. Um, so you can sign up for a table now. Um, you can follow us on um, Instagram, uh, Twitter, you know, the, the usual social media stuff um, at the dinner party or at dinner partiers, uh, depending on your platform. And yeah, um, come grab a seat. I just want to say thanks so much. Thank you so it's much. been so great to hang out with you. Like really the last time it was ages ago. And th when it happened, I was like, oh, Lennon's so great. This is, <laughs> this is reflected by when I started organizing this. I wanted to reach out to you insta instantly, almost at Instamundo, because I'm actually a 1980s radio DJ. So uh, anyway. Uh, oh my goodness, you are. I believe in reincarnation now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. And uh, we are so, so pleased to have had you here. Y'all, this was so much fun. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, here's some more lifefulness. Thanks for giving me words that actually have meaning that I can oh. embrace. <laughs> the divinity out. Oh my gosh, I love Lennon. It was so great to speak to her. I haven't had a the proper chat for ages. Uh, I'm quite bad at keeping up with people. So I have a feeling there's going to be a bit of this podcast, which is just... Uh, sort of making sure that I do get to speak to people that I love and I'm just not very good at seeing them as much as I would like. Yeah, there we have it. Uh, it was, you know, so much of that uh, conversation is just like so directly related to the Lifefulness Project, this idea of, you know, like learning from spiritual communities and congregations and uh, there, oh, and by the way, if this is your first time listening to this, I use the outro just to go and talk about the Life on This Project community. Uh, and then also, I haven't yet found the right way of explaining this, but the podcast is being released uh, on September the 7th or 9th, start of that week. And what I'm doing is, and there's about 10 of them being done, and I'm sort of working backwards. So this is like now... 10 weeks before the podcast was launched or something like that. So this was on the start of July, the sixth week starting the 6th of July. And yeah, the Facebook community accelerator had started. And that meant that there were sort of like, there's actually some really cool training that we were doing, meeting these amazing community organizers from across the world are doing some super inspiring things. And at the end of week one, I had a sit down chat with this guy called Ben Keane from the I'm from the Life on This Project from Rebel Book Club, this uh, awesome book club, which you should uh, check out. And yeah, so that's where the uh, Life on This Project was. 
and it's actually and it's actually from Ben and looking at some of the work that he did it sort of really made me think of like a great way of doing community of like going from the podcast to something more meaningful and more connected if you think the podcast really meaningful I don't I hope I don't think I'm denigrating it. Something more connected, something a bit more higher commitment, something which is really based around relationships, you know, some real community. Yeah, it was this idea of doing small groups. So that's the thing which we're now doing at the Lifefulness Project. Go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership and... Yeah, you'll get, uh, you can then go and apply to be part of the small groups. We're starting off small first and we've got this application form because we, uh, if it was all white men, if it was all men, if it was all women, if it was all anyone, it wouldn't be right. We're going to try to make it diverse from the start. That's why there's an application form. Yeah, I guess in with regards to the Lennon interview, the idea is that it is really like those sorts of like a dinner party where you go and create connections and each week there will be a new topic to discuss. Uh, sometimes it's going to be based on the podcast and the issues which get brought up there. Sometimes it will be uh, sort of other guided processes, but it's that idea of committing to people and really asking more of each other that this becomes something which is in your diary and in your life. And so that is the Life on This Project small groups. So I think I've said all the things that I need to say about the journey where we were at, uh, with uh, the Life on This Project, what's happening with the community and just a bit about the Lennon Flowers uh, interview. So the last thing to say is please do like, share, subscribe, find the Life on This Project on every single platform that you can. That really helps at the start. Leave a review. We'd love that. Uh, and then just to say thanks to everyone who took part. Thank you so much to Lennon Flowers. You're great. Thanks to my wonderful co-host, who I love dearly, James Croft. Uh, thanks to the producer, Mavs Shetty. Thanks to uh, uh, the amazing music from Roman Rapak and Miro Shot, And thanks to the artwork. Thanks for the artwork to Will Andrews. Thanks so much to everyone for getting here and speak to you next time.